Well, hey, everybody, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you know, if you're new to B4 or this is one of your first times uh, hanging out with us, uh, I just want to welcome you in, in particular and just say thank you so much for taking time with us. I, I want to explain something and take a minute to talk about this series of sermons that we're in right now. Um, you know, I've been preaching for somewhere around 25 years, thousands of sermons, and uh, I've learned something in that span of time. Uh, and I've learned that different series tend to take a different shape uh, as, you, as you mold them around books of the Bible, because different books of the Bible, uh, they have a tendency to challenge you in very different ways. They, they teach you different things. In fact, there's even been times for me when I've taught a book of the Bible, and then maybe a few years later, I've seen a completely different thread running through that book than the one I saw the last time. And so I, I say all that to say, um, I want to acknowledge the reality that this series, When the World Turns Upside Down, this series, Walking Through the Book of Acts, uh, it has a certain aspect to it that might be challenging to some of us, a certain angle, a certain flavor that might be uh, a little more challenging than what we're used to. Um, if you've been with us through the course of this series, you probably noticed that we haven't focused much on individual or personal discipleship. Um, this has not been a series where we've talked about um, your personal practices as a follower of Jesus. We haven't spent time talking about you praying a certain way or praying a certain amount or uh, worshiping at a particular time of day or during a particular time of year. It hasn't been about your daily rhythms. It hasn't been about um, your habits or hangups. We haven't talked about those kinds of things. Because the book of Acts that this series is rooted in is bigger than individual behavioral practices. This, this book of Acts that we're walking through, it's, it's bigger than our personal preferences or even our own so-called personal salvation. Um, when we're reading about these people in this story, it's not like we're reading about people who found a new musician that they enjoy listening to. This isn't them finding a new author that they're suddenly enthralled with. This isn't them finding a favorite radio station they're going to tune into. We are reading about people who had their lives fundamentally changed. The very foundation of their life is completely fragmented and reshaped because of what's happening in, in this story, which I believe explains the radical impact their life had on the world. So, so I say that to say that maybe for the past couple of weeks, you, you've been listening to this and you feel like we're hitting some really high level, maybe some hard hitting subjects. And I just want to explain to you that um, this was the stuff they were walking through that made them who they were. It was these kinds of difficult subjects, these kinds of controversial things that was causing them to feel the way they feel and then do the things that they did. And, and I want nothing more for our community, to be honest with you, I want nothing more for our community of faith to, to be the kind of community of faith in the world today that makes the kind of difference that those people made in their world. They became the new humanity because they dealt with these difficult things, because they wrestled with the hard stuff, because they had the tough conversations. And in the process of this, they showed the world a new way to live, a third way to live in the world. And that's what we're discovering now. We're discovering a new way for us to live in the world. How do we live in this crazy upside down world that we find ourselves in? Which now brings us to the text today. Um, the second half of Acts chapter 11 is where we are today. If you have a Bible, you can, you can turn to it. But let me just explain to you and just let you know in, in advance that uh, I love this chapter of the Bible. Um, it's one of the most compelling, beautiful, informative chapters in the book of Acts. I, I think it tells us so much about who we're called to be as a church. But before I read this, I want to just give you a kind of a, a brief timeline of the most recent preceding events that are relevant to what we're going to read here. Um, 
A few chapters back, if you've been with us, you remember this, that Jesus confronted an individual named Saul on the road to Damascus. In the process of this confrontation, he actually comes to him and he places a call on his life and says, here's what the rest of your life is going to look like. Now, the challenge is that in the middle of that, it included him reaching to a group of people that had formerly been rejected by the Jews. They were called Gentiles. And so there's this little moment when the story seems to take an unusual turn. We hear this call on Paul's life. He's going to the Gentiles. And then you keep reading in the book, you keep reading in these chapters, and the very next thing that happens is that Peter, another apostle, he gets confronted with the same reality through a vision. And then shortly after this vision, he meets a guy named Cornelius who happens to be one of these Gentiles. And Cornelius actually wants to join the Jesus movement. And so he baptizes him. He baptizes his household. And then almost immediately after this, this is what we looked at last week, there's this explanation to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are looking on from a distance and saying, what's happening with this? And so they go there and Peter explains. And so all of them are reconciling this reality that God seems to be doing something they hadn't seen God do previously. He is going to the Gentiles. God is reaching into their lives. So just let me give some context that for the past couple of weeks, we've been watching as these individuals were trying to wrap their minds around the idea that God is doing a new thing. All the while, we are embracing this idea that just possibly, just maybe, God is doing a new thing among us right now. So, when we pick up where we left off last week, there is no turning back from this. And, and what we discover is that while God was explaining to those individuals who, who needed an explanation, he was already reaching those individuals who needed reaching. He was explaining to them, this is why we're doing this. This is what we're doing. But while he was explaining, his spirit was going forward and already reaching the people he was preparing them for. He wasn't asking them for permission. He was simply inviting them. Will you join me in reaching people you never imagined you would reach? God was allowing them to get on board, but he was already moving. And, and, and what he was shaping, what he was forming, and what he was preparing them for, I think is one of the most beautiful things that you'll ever read in the Bible. So if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 19. It says this. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. So if you notice this, Luke goes back to the things that happened before this call of Saul and Peter and Cornelius and the explanation to the Jewish uh, Christians in Jerusalem. He goes back to that. He goes, this is what was happening back then before all that stuff happened. It says, verse 20, that some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So, so in other words, Luke's saying, well, God's essentially looking at them and saying, while you were debating the political correctness of reaching Gentiles, or while you were analyzing the biblical basis for Peter baptizing Cornelius, God was already on the move. I was already doing this. He was going ahead of them to a place called Antioch. Look what it says next. So they speak to the Greeks, and verse 21 says, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed, and they turned to the Lord. And then several things take place next that are truly beautiful. Verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And then catch this, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, I can hardly wait to unpack this with you, um, because beneath the layers of what we just read is this incredible thing that's taking place. Um, First, we are reading about the first time that the gospel really comes to a city. Um, And Antioch is an amazing, amazing city. This is a new thing. Um, The city of Antioch, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and it was the capital of Syria at the time. It's about 10 times the size of Jerusalem. So this is a massive place. Uh, In fact, historians have calculated the population, and it's somewhere around the combined population of Portland and Beaverton. You can imagine this during that time, that is a massive city center. Um, now, that also being said was, was along with this, there, there was diversity in this city. There was a complexity to the city. There was pluralism. There were all sorts of religions that people were participating in. Um, this was radically different than the rural towns. This was radically different than, than the, the agrarian society. This was an urban culture. And this is what we notice in this. When the gospel comes into this city, amazing things happen. And in fact, we're going to see Antioch again later in the book of Acts, and this city becomes an incredibly significant city in the expansion and the development of the church moving forward in history. But at the outset, we see something really surprising, and it's something that would, that would happen again and again. It wasn't just Antioch, but we would see this pattern repeated throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see it in the days ahead. In fact, what we observe in the New Testament is that the more urban and more complex the environment, the more Christianity flourished. So the bigger the city, the more dense the population, the more pluralistic the people, the more multi-ethnic, the more crime, the more poverty, the more complexity of the city, the deeper the impact and the greater the fruit of the gospel. Which honestly, if you're listening to me and you hear this, you're probably a little bit shocked. This is pretty shocking. It was shocking then, and and it's shocking today for many of us, and here's why. For most of us, our conventional thinking says that when Christianity flourishes, it's because people are living in some sort of small, homogenous, insulated community. That's the way we often think about Christianity flourishing, is it's a bunch of people who are living in this isolated spot, and they all look alike, think alike, and do alike. And they think it's easier to to, to happen this way because people are thinking more similarly. Um, It's easier because things are less complex in an environment like that. But cities, this is what we think, cities, cities like ours, cities like the one that we live in, with all of their complexities, with all of their diversity, with such radically different schools of thought, with opposing political parties and ideals, with pluralistic religious experiences, cities are an incredibly difficult environment for the gospel to grow in, right? I mean, isn't that what we think? There are more beliefs, there's more options, the alternatives, they seem more pervasive and available, And so we think that the complexity means that the gospel doesn't take root as easily. But this passage shows us the opposite of that thinking. And it shows us something that historians and sociologists and anthropologists, archaeologists, they all agree on this. They they affirm what the Bible reveals. Christianity thrived in complicated cities. I mean, the the Roman Empire, it's the most urbanized, pluralistic society that the world had ever seen. Uh, There there were several hundred ethnic groups living in the Roman Empire. Um, They're they're spread out over several hundred different districts or regions. They speak a multiplicity of languages. They practice untold numbers of religions. This is really, really diverse, really, really complex. 
And most of the people that are living in the Roman Empire, they're living in cities. In fact, Rome hit a million people in population centuries before another city would ever grow to that size. And then there were these massive population centers like Antioch spread out throughout the entire empire. And yet if you read history, if you read and understand what happened with Christianity, you discover that by 313 AD, 56% of the world's population were Christians. And what's even more interesting about this is that nearly all of those who are following Jesus lived in cities. Ironically, (laughs) it was the people living in rural areas who were the secular, polytheistic, sort of barbarian individuals. In fact, um, the word pagan that maybe you've heard someone use towards non-believing people, by the way, don't ever use that term against somebody, but that word actually meant, in, in, in that language, it meant countryside or farmland. The word paganos. The people of the cities were Christians. The people of the country, they were pagans. Now, why does this matter? Why am I taking time to explain this to you? Well, after the Roman Empire fell, it wasn't until about the 1850s that the world began to look and function the way that it was during the Roman Empire. Like nothing looked like it until around 1850. Then the world started shifting and we suddenly began entering into an age in which things started to look like that empire. Which means this, fast forward another 150, 170 years and the world that we live in today is more like that time period than ever before. Which has incredible importance to us and here's why. Please catch this. We have to see that the last time that the world was this complex, this pluralistic, this troubled, Christianity exploded. It flourished. It thrived. And the Bible and history show us that the more dense, the more pluralistic, the more politically charged, the more options people had, the more Christianity flourished. So now we have to ask the question, well, why? What do we learn about this? What is this showing us so that we can follow in their footsteps? Let me get back to the passage because there are two explanations in this passage that there are things that happened in Antioch that had never happened before. The first thing is that the city um, reveals the gospel's power to transform people's individual lives. There's there's actual life change taking place. If you look back at verse 20, if you look back at verse 24, twice it says that great numbers of people were now following Jesus in the city of Antioch. Um, Here's what's fascinating about this. Up until this point, the people who were preaching the gospel were preaching to religious people. This is what they're thinking was. They figured, uh, we're going to go to the people who understand the gospel. We're going to go to the people who, who, would, who would love Jesus because maybe they anticipated him because they were familiar with the Old Testament. They're going to be people who, at least if they didn't know Jesus, they, they loved God and they were pursuing God in some capacity. People who were trying to know and seek God. That's who they'd been preaching to. And so they preached to religious people saying, this is the fulfillment of what you've been longing for. You've been looking for this religiously and now this is the answer to what you've been seeking for. They never in their wildest imaginations dreamed that it would be the irreligious who would be interested in Jesus. And for them, it would have been like, wait, those city people, you want us to, to tell the city people, these, these, these people that are worshiping all these gods and how all of these things going on, the politics, the trouble, the diversity, all of this, the immoral people, the people who are all so different, hard to understand. You want us to tell them about the person of Jesus. But when they started preaching to these people, they're shocked 
because there's massive numbers of people who are incredibly interested in and open to the gospel. In fact, let me just share this with you. Jesus, Jesus tells a parable at one point during his public ministry. Uh, it's a parable of two sons. Uh, in the church world, we call it the story or the, the parable of the prodigal son. And it's an unfortunate name because it's actually a story about two sons. The point is that there are two sons. And the first son that you meet in this story that Jesus tells, he, he squanders his inheritance. He goes to his dad, says, give me my inheritance early. And then he squanders it on women and partying. And, and he goes off to a foreign land, the Bible says, and he, and he parties his inheritance away. Now, if you were a first century Jew, and you were listening to Jesus tell this story about a younger brother who took his inheritance and went off to a faraway place and squandered his money on wild living, you would draw a conclusion of where the younger brother went. If you were living in that time and you thought, who is this person? Where did they go? Well, he went to the city. If he's going to go do this sort of thing, he went to Antioch. That's the kind of place that a person like that would go to squander their inheritance. Now go back to the older brother, the, the one who thinks he's, he's the good son. Where was he? Well, he was at home on the farm, right? Now, one of the points that Jesus makes in this story is that they were both equally estranged from the father. One in his immorality, but one was estranged in his morality. But both of them were alienated from the father. Both of them were in relationship with him. But notice this. In the end of the story, if you've ever heard it, you're familiar with it. In the end of the story, it's the younger brother who was more open to receiving grace. Why? Well, I, I believe that there are a few explanations of this. First of all, if you're living in this environment, if you've gone off to the city and you're squandering your wealth on loose living, you are exposed to new ideas. If you're living in an environment like Antioch, you, you, you understand new philosophies. You tend to be open to hearing new things about how people live in the world. But at the same time, because of the complexities, because of the trials, because of the struggles, you also see the weaknesses of those ideas. You see the failures of those various philosophies. You, you, you see the end of, of how the game is played. You see the failure of politics. You see the failure of religion. Maybe you even come into to conflict with your own ideas about life. And in the city, you finally realize, even the way I've thought about my life, it isn't working. That's what happens. And so you become increasingly open. Not only that, when a younger brother falls away from God, he knows it. When somebody who's gone off and they're distant from God, they feel this. They feel the depths in their soul. There's an ache. There, there, there's an emptiness. There, uh, oftentimes, there's even a willingness to admit it. Contrast that to a religious person. When a religious person, when a moral person drifts away from God, they just keep trying harder, and they get more bitter. They get more angry. And when someone tries to talk about, to talk about grace or the gospel to those people, they just simply become defensive. They, they want to protect their position but not the younger brothers. There's life change happening because they're seeing something different. And that really leads to the second explanation of, of why this happens. Um, Antioch reveals a whole new way to live. Uh, it shows us something that's groundbreaking. See, Antioch, um, Antioch was built by one of Alexander the Great's generals. It was named after his father. And, uh, and it had very economic and strategic significance. But there was a byproduct of the, the city's location when they built it. First of all, because it was built by the Romans, there were Greeks and Romans that were living in the city. But because it was also very close to Africa, there were Africans that were also living in the city. And because it was on primary trade routes and very connected to Asia, there were also people that were Persian and there were Indians and there were Chinese who were also living in the city. 
The, the result is that there are few cities in the world at this time that were as diverse as the city of Antioch. In fact, we know this from history that there were at least 18 distinct ethnic quarters or ethnic districts that were divided up in the city. In fact, um, when the city was built, it had a wall around it like a traditional city during that time. But then within the city, there were walls that segregated the various communities from one another. They did this actually to protect the varying groups that, that were living there because they did commerce in the marketplace. They would come to the center of the city and they would conduct business. And then at the end of their day, they would go back and live with their ethnic or cultural roots. They would, they would stay with the people that they were connected to. And so they built these walls to say, well, what if there was a conflict in the marketplace? We don't want these groups warring against each other at nighttime. And so they did this to save and, and protect the people. So they built these walls, walls within the city with walls. And that's how life worked. You engaged in commerce, and then you went back to be with the people who were like you. But when the gospel comes to Antioch, something remarkable happens. Read the very end of what I read in verse 26 says this. It says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, so that term Christian never existed prior to this moment. Why? What does that mean? It means that among all of the ethnicities, all the nationalities, all of the cultures in the city of Antioch, a new group emerged that was not only com comprised of all the ethnicities and all the nationalities, but this new group's primary point of identity was no longer where they came from. It was no longer the language they spoke or the neighborhood they lived in. It was something new. You need to catch this. It was really easy to identify people in the city of Antioch, right? Oh, you're from there. Okay, so you speak this language, and you probably eat this kind of food, and you worship this God, and you vote in this direction. This is what your life is like. And so you could identify people. But now we have a problem in Antioch. Now we have a problem in that people who were once easy to identify and categorize have created a new category. They've created a new identity. In fact, Acts chapter 13, just a couple chapters down, it mentions five leaders in the Antioch church, and they are from three different continents and, and four different racial groups, the leaders in this church. People began crossing the cultural barriers, and there's this new group that's rising out, a, a new identity. And it is so confusing that the people in the city say, we need a new name for these people. Let's call them Christians. And this is so radical, and, and here's why. Everyone in the world then, and, and, and a lot of people in the world today, believe that religion or religious affiliation is just a, a, a function of your culture. If you're Bosnian, you, you just assume, well, you're probably Muslim. If, uh, if you're Italian, you're probably Catholic. If you're Tibetan, you're probably Hindu. That's, that's the way we think. But now we have something totally different. For the first time, there is an experience of God that is so profound, it was bringing people together across their cultures, they're becoming friends. They're doing life together. They're worshiping together. They become, as Paul later describes, one body together. And, and the world, because of this, is forced to come up with a different name to describe them because they couldn't fit into any other pre-existing category. Here was an experience for them that was deeper than culture. This is more powerful than politics. It's more meaningful than money. This is something else than what they've ever experienced. The gospel is bringing people together who would have never been together otherwise. 
And when they call them Christians, they're being forced to admit, maybe there is a reality and there is a truth that is just, that, that isn't simply culturally constructed. Maybe there's a truth beyond what our culture says is true. I want to share something that's, um, that's deeply personal and, and meaningful to me. Um, for over a decade now, I've had the privilege of developing a deep, enduring love and committed friendship with, with two men, Keith Jenkins and, and Gabe Barrero. In fact, uh, right here are a bunch of pictures of us together over the last decade. And um, there's a lot more of those out there. But these are my brothers. In, in the deepest sense of the word, we just do life. We do ministry together. We have each other's backs. We always will. We always have. We always will. Uh, in fact, you can ask our wives. Um, there's rarely a day that goes by, much to their annoyance. There's rarely a day that goes by that we don't touch base or check in with each other. We laugh with each other. We cry with each other. We have fought in, in very real, very serious ways with each other. I mean, really fight about things. And our friendship has been a, a, a journey of discovery that um, at some point, I know in the future, we're going to talk more about what it's been like for the three of us to form the friendship we have. But it's also a very unlikely friendship. We've sat before, we've tried to explain, how, how do you explain um, a black man from the streets of Baltimore, a Mexican from the back alleys of LA, and a white dude from middle-class suburbia forming the kind of bond and brotherhood that we have. It's impossible. Uh, our brotherhood does not make sense. And, and a few years ago, we were sitting and we we're talking about this, and, and we were, um, even ourselves, we're trying to understand why is it that, that we just, we, we're the way we are. And, and, and we're trying to answer some of these questions because we think they need to be answered. And so we were talking about what makes this possible. Why are we so comfortable with, with each other? We said a number of different things, and there were some good observations, but I'll never forget one part of the conversation. We suddenly realized that something had been happening to us, and it had been happening to us for years. We realized this. Keith, I think, was the first one to say it. He said, I've come to realize that I'm, I'm no longer black enough for my black friends. And then Gabe sort of nodded and he said, you know what? Um, the same is true of me. I'm, I'm no longer Mexican enough for my Mexican friends. I'm no longer brown enough for my brown friends. And then as we were sitting there, I just said, you know, truth be told, I'm no longer white enough for my white friends. In fact, I have broken relationships because I'm not white enough for some of my white friends. We don't fit the categories. Um, we don't fit the stereotypes, if you will. But it's not because of something that we did. As we sat there and discussed this, we realized it was because of what the gospel has done in us. We are a part of a new humanity. We are an expression of what the church of Jesus looks like. I might be from that place, but I don't belong to that place. I might be from that neighborhood, but I don't belong to that neighborhood. I might be from that culture, but I don't belong to that culture. I belong to the new humanity. And the new humanity, it needs a new name. Because an old name for who I am doesn't work anymore. So let me just say it this way. When you belong to the gospel, you will no longer belong anywhere else. When you belong to the gospel... You will never belong. We will never belong anywhere else. There will never be categories or names or titles that fit us anymore. We get a new name. We get a new identity. And all of those other labels, all of those other characteristics, they just don't quite fit anymore. And when I look at Antioch, when I look at this church, that's what I see. 
So a couple of things for us to think about as we wrap up. I'm going to invite the band to, to prepare, and as they get set up, I want to close with this. Just some stuff to think about. I'm going to start with the personal stuff, and I'm going to ask you this question. To what do you belong? What do you really belong to? Uh, you know, I, I've heard people in recent days kind of looking at our political situation. They've said, we need a third-party system. That's the answer. We don't need a third-party system. We need a third way to live. We need a new humanity in our world today. It isn't a political answer. In fact, um, Rich Velotis, whom I've had the privilege of, of connecting with, he pastors a church in Queens. This past week, he said this, and I just think it fits so well with this conversation. He said this, when Christians are more conversant around partisan talking points than the Sermon on the Mount, we demonstrate that our Christianity is secondary and servant to our politics. Friends, let me just say this. Christians don't fit into political categories. If we did, we wouldn't need to define ourselves with the word Christian. We could just use the party name and everyone would know, well, that just means this. The whole point is that the new label is necessary because the old labels don't work anymore. And that's okay. It's okay to say, I don't feel like I fit there anymore because the gospel is what, what I belong to now. This new humanity is what I belong to. And so that thing is just a little uncomfortable for me now. That's an okay thing to feel. It's natural. And it may be politics or it may be something else. It may be a cultural thing for you. It might be a demographic thing for you. It might be a list of labels. You could go on and on. It might be some other thing where you're, I, I kind of want this thing to fit, but it doesn't feel right anymore. It's okay. Because if you belong to the gospel, you don't belong to anything else anymore. That's the first thing I want you to wrestle with. What do you belong to? What do you really belong to? And the second thing, and this is, this is more of a statement about our church than anything else. Let me just make this really clear. I don't believe that we are called to be a multicultural church. Antioch was a multicultural city made evident by the walls that separated the cultures. I believe we are called to be an intercultural church where all people from all cultures, shape a new gospel reality in this place and time. It is not about accommodation. It's about integration. It is about inclusion. It's about embracing the other, embracing those who are different than us, and shaping this new humanity. That is a witness to the world. And by the way, this isn't just about ethnicity also. I mean, ethnicity is a massive part of this, but this is also about age. Will we be a church that is multi-generational, looking to the younger new generation coming up behind us? And one of the distinct reasons that Christianity flourished the way that it did was that there was no explanation. When people looked at the people, they looked up, they saw them gathering and they thought, there's no explanation for this apart from Jesus. Why would these people ever be together? Why would these sorts of friendships ever exist? How could this community ever be? And the only answer was Jesus. That's my hope for us. Let me just say, we are not here to build a great church. We are here to build a great city. We are here to be a new humanity. That's what the gospel does in us. That's what the gospel does through us. When we choose to belong to the gospel, that's what happens. When we make the decision that I'm not going to belong to anything else, I'm just going to belong to the gospel, that's what takes place. I want us to take a moment right now. As, as the band plays, I want us to uh, just consider and to think and let this stuff ruminate. And I, I want you to wrestle with the question, are you open to what God's doing? Do you see this new thing? Are, are you willing to be challenged 
about the categories that you've used to define yourself. Do you really belong to the gospel above everything else? Let's take some time and worship together.
You know, I'm gonna share something right now that I, I wasn't planning on sharing. Um, this morning I was in my truck and I was driving, I was driving down here and uh, I just, I was thinking about the Antioch church and I, I just, I said at the beginning, I'll say it again, and I just, I love, I love the beautiful new humanity that's figuring out a third way to live in, in the book of Acts and specifically in the city of Antioch. But I was driving this morning, I was just thinking, I was thinking like, what's the biggest hang up for people in this? Like, what is it that the American church in particular struggles with? And, and as I was just thinking, I found myself sort of preaching to myself and preaching to, to the windshield as I was driving. And, and, and I found myself, I began just sort of ranting about the reality that most of us in this life, most of us in America, we've taken Jesus, we've taken Christianity, and we've added Jesus like an accessory to our lives. Like we had this pie that was incomplete. We had a job and we maybe had a relationship with somebody that we loved. And maybe some of us have got kids and some of us have recreation. And we kind of look around and we go, well, there's something missing. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to add Jesus and maybe that'll make the pie complete. And that is fundamentally the opposite of what Jesus is about. This message of the gospel is about a complete reshaping of everything. Jesus is the pie. And now everything else fits into this. So as long as we keep trying to like hold on to these categories, as long as we keep wanting these titles, these names, as long as we keep wanting these affiliations and we, we, we deprioritize the affiliation with Jesus and just sort of put it in the same realm of everything else, we, this is never gonna make sense. You'll listen to messages like this one and you'll just be angry. You'll walk away and be frustrated. You'll get defensive like the older brother. It's only when we realize that Jesus wants all of us and that this message of the gospel is an all-encompassing, all-of-life reality, it's only then that we can look at a story like the one in Antioch and it come to life the way it was intended to come to life. And so today, as you listen to this, as you receive this, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, may you be men and women who allow Jesus to impact and influence all of your life. May you be the kind of people who choose to no longer belong to any other titles, affiliations, categories, or cultures. May you choose to belong to the gospel. And may you be men and women who shape and form and represent and become the new humanity in our world today. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys so much. Thank you for taking time to watch with us today. Again, this next week, we'll have more great content, great things for you. Until then, let's keep living out the way of Jesus. See you soon.